Yeah, so that uh, that was supposed to only take 30 minutes, but that took... Uh, two hours. I know. You got was it two hours? It like an hour and a half. You got home at 10, 15. Or you got home at 11. <laughs> <laughs> we were all starving by the end of it. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, not Caleb. <laughs> Caleb's sodium is still jacked up right now. How many sandwiches did he get? I had to get two just to make sure that we had enough. Uh... Uh, yeah. Then he spit the rest of it out into my Tupperware container, which I then found at home. <laughs> Thanks for that, Caleb. You have to say, though, if there was ever a Kevin double. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he even made that comment. Yeah. It was perfect. Oh, man. I'm planning on leaving. Yeah, should have brought chili. Should have wore brown suit. Again, for those of you listening on the podcast, uh, make sure you check out all of these videos. are going to be online. Uh, through our Instagram, Facebook pages, and whatnot. So it's going to make sense to you if you see those videos first. And it really will help introduce the next rule that we're going to cover today, and hopefully you guys get it. Rule number two, the people group factor. There are three groups of people that the Bible is talking about. And as we just saw, and as is on your outline, there are passages of scriptures written to Jews. There are passages of scriptures written to Gentiles. And there are passages of Scripture written to the church of God. The key verse that reveals this to us is right there at the top of your sheet, 1 Corinthians 10.32. He says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Right there, using the Bible to be the Bible and interpret the Bible, he shows us that there are three different groups of people. So let's break this down a little bit further. God's definition of people group. Jews, we understand very, very well. I mean, those are Israelites. They are God's people. All throughout the Old Testament, God worked with the nation of Abraham, the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. He's the God of Moses. That's the, the Hebrew nation, Jews. And as we talked about on our Wednesday night series of the Book of Romans, who are Gentiles, very simply put? Anyone who's not a Jew. I would say, by and large, that might be everybody in this room. But then there's this third group, the Church of God. I need four volunteers. Dustin, go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Kendall, chapter 10 of Romans, verses 12 to 13. Sammy, Galatians 3.28. And Jake. Colossians 3.11. The church of God is very unique in that it is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Because there's only really two people groups. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. There's no other difference. But the church of God comprises both of these. There's just a caveat to that. Dustin, go ahead and read verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. No worries. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel, the saving power of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as payment for your sins, something that you could never do. Not with the no amount of good works, not with your baptism, not with church attendance. You could never pay the price for your own sins. It was only through the blood of Christ dying in your place on the cross. The gospel was to go to the Jew first. That's why even when you look at the, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus first sends out his disciples on a missions trip, he tells them, go not to the Gentile nations. 
He told his disciples, go only to the lost sheep of Israel because the gospel was to go to them first. They were God's chosen people all the way going back to Abraham's day. He wanted his people to hear the gospel first. And then had they received the good news, they would then take that gospel to the Gentile nations afterwards. But you guys do see that both Jews and Gentiles, everyone can receive the gospel if they believe it, if they put their faith and trust in Christ alone. You see that, right? Everyone who believes or is a believer is the Jews and Gentiles. They comprise the church of God. Chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we've already kind of seen the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 1 specifically, God uses that term Greek to mean Gentile. It's just another phrase that he uses for it. There's no difference when you're in the church of God, when you become a believer, when you receive the gospel, there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Now, granted, they still have their, their racial identity, they still have their ethnicity, but from God's eyes, he sees them as being a part of this special people group that is independent of the Jews and the Gentiles. Galatians 3.28 there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one You're all one. Kind of just repeats what he said in chapter 10, verse 12. And lastly, Colossians 3, Jake. Yeah, 3.11, right? Yep. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Case made point clearly made. Again, you might want to write down some of these passages that we looked at. Put them in your Bible. Put them in your notes so that if somebody asks you, well, how can you prove that? What, where is there to show that the church of God is any different? Because honestly, when you look at it today, predominantly, the church is comprised of mostly who? Gentiles. So some people might look at that and especially the way that they see the Bible and take things out of context, they might look at that and say, well, God is clearly done with the Jew. God no longer has a plan and a purpose for the Jew. So they might ask you, oh, you think there's three people groups? Well, can you show me in the Bible where that's the case? Write down some of these verses that you guys all just read so that you can prove your case, so that you can show them with the Bible, because they have their own perspective, either from taking Scripture out of context or just because they heard some YouTube pastor that they then go on and listen to, and listen to that guy take passages out of, out of context, and then they adopt those beliefs as their own. I've seen it happen again and again and again, even within this own church. We need to know not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. And as you'll see by the end of today, no, God is not done with the Jew. He is not done with Israel. Very, very important. And you might want to star this next paragraph that's on your outline here, this next sentence. It was mentioned in the video to introduce the class, but here's the real gist of this, this, this factor. Everything in the Bible is written for us. Just like in the video, all three of those salesmen there needed to hear the things that were being said. You must consider the people group of the Bible passage it is written to in order to interpret the... Oh, I completely skipped the rest of the sentence. Everything in the Bible is written for us, but not everything in the Bible is written to 
you. There are many books, there are many passages where God is specifically speaking to somebody else. Now, can you glean from that? Yes. Uh, how many of you guys, you probably have heard the analogy before, and I didn't want to recreate it with the video. I want to do something different, but I'll go and throw it in here because maybe it'll help you guys just comprehend it a little bit more. It does for me. But have you heard Pastor Tom kind of give the analogy of, can you imagine if his great uncle left him just an enormous will and wrote him this letter? And in the letter, not only did it give him the will for like millions of dollars, but it also had some very encouraging things from his uncle. Some encouraging things about life, about how to better yourself, how to make sure that you don't fall into the same mistakes that, that he did or anything like that. And can you imagine if, like Pastor Tom, he was so encouraged by this letter, he, he shows it to Jaden. He's like, Jaden, you got to check out this letter, man. It's really going to help your life. And Jaden gets down to the end of the letter and he goes, awesome. When do we get our share of the money? It's the same thing. The letter was written to Pastor Tom, but Jaden... It could be for him. He can glean some encouraging things from that letter, but the will and the inheritance is to Pastor Tom, not Jaden. It's the same thing with the Bible. There are a lot of passages that while we can glean things from it and apply it to our lives today, because all Scripture, the Bible says, is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. The entire Bible you can profit from, you can benefit from, but... There are certain things that God says specifically to a people group that specifically belong to that people group and not to you. We'll see a couple of those examples. So you must consider the people group of a Bible passage is written to in order to interpret the passage in its proper context. All right, next point, people group examples. Only 13 out of the 66 books in the Bible are written directly to the church. We did this example a couple weeks ago when we were covering Philemon. Philemon is the last book of the Bible that is written to the church. Anybody know what the first book is? Give you a hint. Now is it on your outline, but we're covering it on Wednesday night. Romans. Romans. You see on your outline that Romans to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are written directly to churches. First and Second Timothy and Titus, the books that come after Second Thessalonians, are written to church pastors. And Philemon is written from one Christian friend to another. We did this activity. We don't have time to do it today. But again, go to Romans and then go to Philemon and then just pinch those pages of your Bible. You'll see it is a very thin sliver of your entire Bible that is actually to the church. The rest of that ginormous book that is on your lap right now, it's mostly Jewish. Predominantly Jewish. And some Gentile thrown in. And you know what this shows us? Shows us that this book is not all about us. I mentioned this before, I think, uh, I don't know if it was last week or Wednesday. The weeks are running together now. But, you know, we often have this idea that the theme of the Bible is the gospel. We think that the theme of the Bible, every single book, every single chapter, every single story that happens, it's all pointing to the cross and our response to the cross. What will we do with Jesus Christ providing himself as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God? What will we do with that? Will we receive him by faith or will we reject him? We often think that that's the main central theme, but it's not. 
We've talked about it recently. What is the theme of the entire Bible? It's the day of the Lord. The day when Jesus Christ is sitting and ruling and reigning as king over the entire universe. And all of evil has been eradicated once and for all. That happens at the second coming. Every book of the Bible is all pointing to that day. It's called the restitution of all things. When God restores everything the way that it was supposed to be in Garden of Eden. That's the theme of it. The book is not all about us, and not all of the book is even written to us. It's just a very tiny example. So to break this down, point number two on your outline, what are those Jewish books? By and large, it's mostly Old Testament. You might have been thinking, oh, wait, it's the entire Old Testament. No, there's a few outliers there. But you have Genesis all the way to Amos. Then you also have Micah, and then Habakkuk to Malachi. These are, all, these are all written directly to the Jews. Now, don't get confused by this next one. But even in the New Testament, Matthew to John are written to the Jews, proving Jesus as a king, as a servant, book of Mark, as a man, book of Luke, and as God, book of John. And I don't know if you guys remember a couple months ago when we were in the book of Revelation and we looked at how in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, we came across this verse where in heaven, John sees that there's this beast that's in heaven and it was like a lion and the second beast was like a calf and the third beast had a face as a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And we looked in the study of Revelation how all four of those animals line up perfectly with the central themes of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how Christ is presented as each of these things. A lion is known as the what of the jungle? The king of the jungle. You will not see another predator that goes after a lion in the jungle. He's the king. And the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, presents Christ as king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Second beast, like a calf. Man, as far as workhorses, you know, work, not workhorses, but as work animals, as far as laboring animals are concerned, Man, an ox, you will not find a stronger beast of the field that is able to plow the fields, that is able to work. And that is exactly what the Gospel of Mark portrays Christ as. That servant who came not to be ministered unto, but to what? Minister. Are you a Christian, little Christ? That was his heartbeat. Is that yours? To not be ministered unto? To not come to Sunday school and Wednesday nights to hear more of the Word of God, to have other people minister to me, but rather for you to do the work and to be like a calf and to plow and to be a servant and to minister to others. That's the point of the Gospel of Mark. And the third beast had a face as a man because the book of Luke presents Christ as 100% man. He was born of the seed of the king of David. He was that righteous branch that Jeremiah 23 talks about from the lineage of David. We can trace his lineage all the way back. And the fourth beast, like a flying eagle, the king of the sky. And that's why John presents Christ as 100% God. Now, the reason we bring this up is because as the Jews would be 
uh, hearing these things as the Acts of the Apostles would be going and everything that they saw happening in the Gospels, they would be thinking, Jews would be thinking of this passage in Ezekiel 1. As for the likeness of their faces, again, in heaven, they, had, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion. And the other one had a face of an ox, and the four had a face of an eagle. They would be recognizing, remembering, huh, just like all of these Gospels are being written to present Christ in a different perspective, it's kind of reminiscent to this passage of our Old Testament. And not to mention the fact, you might want to write down Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 to 17 on your page. Because this is very important. It's going to make even more sense next Sunday when we cover rule number three. But you know what Hebrews 9, 16 and 17 says? You want to know what constitutes a split in a testament? For starters, do you guys know what a testament is? Where do you hear that phrase usually used, or that word? New and old, well, new and old for the Bible, absolutely. Courts. But has anybody ever, huh? Courts. Courts. Specifically, why? Like if someone, a witness, sees something. Testimony, and which is another word usage of that word. But have you guys ever heard of somebody like your parents or your grandparents having a will? Yeah. You know what the actual formal title of that is called? Last will and testament. That will, man, this is coming up often today. That will, do you get anything of it or is it, does it have any power while your parents or grandparents are still alive? No. That last will and testament does not go into effect until the testator, the person who wrote it, dies. <laughs> so what Hebrews 9, 16, and 17 says is essentially that, which lets us know that when does the New Testament technically begin? If the New Testament is in His blood, when does the New Testament begin? Is it Matthew? No. The way our books are ordered, yeah. But the actual New Testament, living in the New Testament age, again, that'll make more sense next week, doesn't actually begin until Christ died on the cross. Which means that most of everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament. It's still very Jewish in its economy in the way that it was written. This is important because there are things early on in those Gospels that a lot of churches today take out of context and apply it to us in the church age and say that this is Bible doctrine for today when that's not at all the case. You have to be careful. And moving on. Also in the New Testament, you have Hebrews to Jude. These are the Jewish epistles because there's more Jewish approach to them. They're also called the general epistles because they do have a general application of churches as well. But you've got to be very, very careful with those books. Because there's a lot of things that are in those books that when God is speaking through Peter, through James, or through John, He's speaking prophetically about a future time that is going to help future Christians when the church is no longer here on this earth. It's trippy. Have you guys read any of those books recently? The book of Hebrews, book of James, 
especially James. There's some trippy stuff in the book of James, which if you're not careful, can really mess you up. But even just consider, look at this sub-point on your outline there. Consider the title of Hebrews. Is there any doubt whatsoever as to who that book is written to? It's Hebrews. It's Jews. In fact, you will find so many Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews, it'll make your head spin. You almost need to have a concordance and a, and a treasury of scripture knowledge and a lexicon just to be able to figure out, okay, so what Old Testament passage is he talking about here in chapter 2? In chapter 3? It's so immersed in Old Testament theology, yet it's found within our New Testament. And we believe the author is the Apostle Paul. Doesn't show that. You have to do some digging to find that bad boy out. But it's the Apostle Paul writing to Jews to prove to them that Christ is better than everything found in the Old Testament law. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Now, can you still glean things from that? Absolutely. I quote passages of Scripture all the time from the book of Hebrews to help you guys. I just did last Wednesday. That Jesus Christ, He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And does that not help you to understand that? Did it not help you guys, for who, those of you who were here Wednesday night or those of you who listened on the podcast, does it not help you to know that, man, I have an advocate. I have somebody in heaven who just so happens to be my Lord and Savior who gets the things I go through. Yeah, that passage is found in Hebrews 4.19. What a beautiful passage that we can glean and get encouragement from for us. It's just not written to us. Because God has another plan and a purpose, a bigger plan and a purpose that He's going to use that book for during the tribulation period. But look at Galatians chapter 2. Follow along with me in verse 7. This is Paul writing. And he says, but contrary-wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, who is that? For those of you who have been going along in our Roman study. Gentiles. The gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, Paul, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Simply put, Peter's job was to preach the gospel of the Jews. Paul's job was to preach the gospel of the Gentiles. For he, verse 8, that wrought effectually in Peter the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. The same power as Christ, in other words. Verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Now, based upon the rule of context, who the heck is this guy Cephas? Fourteenth disciple. He's looking at me. Look at the book. Context. Anybody here currently reading in the Gospels? In your personal devotion time? Anybody just come from reading the Gospels in their personal devotion time? Is it Peter? How'd you figure that out? Because... Uh, Verse 9, it says that they were going under the circumcision. I was just talking about how Peter was commended to the circumcision. Very good. Bingo. Cephas is Peter. 
because of what Jake just said. They were called to go to the gospel. They were take the gospel of the circumcision. And Peter was just mentioned in the previous verses as doing that. Not to mention the fact that in the Gospels, the point I was trying to get at with that was that whenever you look at the 12 disciples of the 12, there was always this group of three that were very, very close, particularly with Christ. And it was James, John, and Peter. And he mentions these three here as being pillars. And they were to go. So why I, why I bring that up and why I go to this passage here is because of what's on your outline here. Consider what is said about most of the authors in Galatians 2, 7 through 9. If you think about it, you have Hebrews and Jude to bookend the Jewish section of the New Testament. Everything in between is written by these three guys. James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Most of these Jewish letters are written from these three pillars of the faith in the early days of the Acts of the Apostles, the three guys who were to go and take the gospel to the Jews. That was their job. That was their goal to Jewish born-again believers. In fact, check out James 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1 here on the screen. It says, James, a servant of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, to... The twelve what? Tribes are scattered abroad. Greeting. You know why the twelve tribes are scattered abroad? You might want to put down on there Acts 8.1 because it says that there was a man by the name of Saul who was breathing out threatenings of slaughter. Saul, before he got saved, became the Apostle Paul. And because of the persecution, the believers there in Jerusalem scattered about all throughout the regions and they took the gospel with them. Remember how Christ specifically said that when he left, we were called to be witnesses and to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding area of Jerusalem, and Samaria, the country surrounding it, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Yeah, well, as we saw in church history, that sometimes the church grows through persecution. Getting made fun of at your school? Getting made fun of because you take your Bible with you? Because you go to church because you don't partake in the things that everybody else on the football team does or on the soccer team does because you're different than them? Getting made fun of? Yeah, that's the best way to grow. It sucks, doesn't feel good, but it's the best way to grow in your walk with Christ because you realize, man, I can't do this on my own. I need Him every single day. That's God's plan for growth, <laughs> is to make things uncomfortable for us because when we're uncomfortable in our flesh and in our intellect, it causes us to drop to our knees and to come to Him and to realize our great need for His help every single day. But if none of that's going on, if there's no movement, what do they call waters that just stay still? Stagnant. If there's no moving water, it's just stagnant. Yeah, it's a great picture for what your walk with Christ is going to be like. If you're not moving, if you're not moving and being scattered and taking the gospel with you because things are getting rough in your personal walk, you're just going to grow stagnant. Maybe that's already started happening since school began with you. Isn't it cool that even a verse like this, which is just an opening introductory greeting, 
can pack a devotional punch like that. He's just saying, hey, hey guys, here's who I'm writing to. Dearest, you know, well, no, you guys don't write letters like that anymore. I never did either. I don't know why I brought that up. But he's basically saying, hey, to blank, from James. But man, you could unpack a lot just from that one verse. Even 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The strangers there, that word is a, a phrase that's used for estranged. And for those of you who probably have heard of that, you know, it's usually a, a phrase that's used, we're talking about parents being separated or divorced. They are estranged from each other. That is a phrase that God uses all throughout the Old Testament in relation to Jews, Israel, as having been estranged from God, their husband. And Peter's writing to them. They're strangers. They're believers, but they're estranged from Israel. And they're scattered all throughout. Next, top of your next page, we have the Gentile books. Believe it or not, there are actually three books in your Old Testament that are written to Gentiles. Now, were there Hebrews and Israelites back then who gleaned some awesome truths from those books? Absolutely. But they knew when they read it, oh wait, I can glean some stuff from this, but God's not speaking to me here. First one is Obadiah. I love it. He declares the prophecy of God's judgment on Edom due to their ill treatment of Israel. A Jew would not have read that book and be like, oh man, God is ticked off at me because of how I've treated Israel. No. Which means that we better be careful if we start doing that to other books of the Bible where God is not speaking to the church. You know what's awesome about Obadiah? It's a one-chapter book that talks about this. And you know what's kind of neat about it and what you can glean from it? Is that really it's a picture of the daily battle of the flesh versus the spirit. I don't know if anybody's read Obadiah recently. I sure as heck have not. It's one of those books where you're like flipping through the Old Testament. I don't even know where this is. It's that tiny book. But man, what a picture about the enemies of God coming against the friends of God and knowing that, you know what, one day God's going to get His justice against the enemy. And one day, this flesh that continues to defeat me on a daily basis and is continuing to come against me to try to get me to disrupt my walk with Christ, one day I am never going to sin against God again because justice is coming to this flesh and to this world. But really, it's just a judgment. It's a picture to those in Edom and all the Gentile nations that don't treat God or don't treat God's people properly. I went ahead and threw verse 4 in here. I thought this was kind of interesting. He's talking to this Gentile nation, and he says to them, Though thou, Gentile nation, exalt thyself as the... Who? Eagle. And though thou set thy nest among the stars... Thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. I, I just added this slide this morning. I wish I would have had a follow-up picture to this. But anybody have a dollar bill on them? Anybody look on the back of a dollar bill and see an eagle amongst stars? 
we always wonder, how come we can't really see America in end times prophecy? Maybe, just maybe, this is a verse that could have a modern day application to America as a Gentile nation if we turn our backs on the nation of Israel. You can check it out later if you've never seen a dollar bill before. You guys are looking very fascinated like, dude, there's actually an eagle out here. Did you know this is our bird? Interesting little verse that's in there. But hey, you know what? If you're in here and you just feel like you're not getting any victory over your flesh, maybe try checking out Obadiah. Maybe you'll be able to glean something from that. Now understand, it's not to you. So when you talk, when you hear about the destruction that's coming to these nations, don't read them like, oh, God's going to destroy me. Unless you're not saved. And unless you treat God's people poorly, the nation of Israel. But you can look at that passage, you can look at that book from a devotional application for you as, man, this is my flesh. What God is talking to these nations to, they represent my flesh on a daily basis, this daily battle that I find myself in. You might be blessed for it. Here's an interesting one. Jonah. Jonah details uh, Jonah's call to the capital of... Assy well, Nineveh's on there, but what's the city called? Assyria. The capital of, or I'm sorry, the, the country. Nineveh is a city. Assyria is where they were at. The capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh, to preach a message of repentance. It's to Gentiles. That's what Jonah's message was to. That's who it was to. Don't you love that? Even in the Old Testament, God always had a heart for the Gentiles. Even though Israel were his people, he always had a heart for them. And here's an interesting one, Nahum. Nahum declares a prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh at the peak of Assyrian power. You know what's interesting about Nineveh or about Nahum? It's the sequel to Jonah. Anybody realize that before? Check that book out. You know what you'll find why they end up getting destroyed? Why judgment came to them? We saw in Jonah that they repented of their sins from God or from Jonah's preaching and they believed the message from the messenger and God spared the entire country. So what happened? You read the book of Nahum and you know what you'll find? That they did not pass along truths to their children like Deuteronomy chapter 6 says or Proverbs 22 verse 6 train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he shall not depart from it. They didn't pass along that truth, Jonah's message, to their kids, and they also didn't warn future generations about God's message from Jonah. You know what you could take away from that, even though Nahum is to uh, Nineveh, the Assyrian capital? You can glean from that that, man, if I don't train up future sons and daughters of God, if I don't take what I've learned from this book and instill it in them and teach them to instill it in somebody else and then say they teach it to instill in other people too, and if I don't disciple future disciple makers, judgment's coming. Our church will fall apart. You can glean that from this, but understand that book's not written to you. What about Acts and Revelation? Next point on here. We'll see the book of Acts. You guys have this on your study sheet or is it blank? No. 
Okay. The book of Acts is a book that records the historical events that transition the plan of God away from Israel to the church. We've talked about this. But again, I cannot stress it enough. You need to know that when you hear the book of Acts, you just need to think transitional book. Especially if you're talking with a friend at school who might have a different doctrine that they've taken out of context. You need to know that. It first begins in Jerusalem, then to Antioch, Syria, Gentile place, then throughout the known world. Chapters 1 through 15 focus on the Apostle Peter preaching repentance to the Jewish nation and leaders, whereas chapters 15 and 28 focus almost completely on the ministry of Apostle Paul to the Jews and Gentiles and the formation of the church. In the book of Revelation, sometimes, and I actually almost did this, Revelation is technically a part of those Jewish epistles of Hebrews all the way to the end of the New Testament. Revelation is typically thrown there because, man, there are so many Old Testament references thrown into that book. And again, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, talking about the tribulation period where God goes back to working with the nation of Israel. So that's where technically Revelation ties in here. But I kind of had it as separate, and here's why. Book of Revelation continues where Acts left off with chapters 1 to 3, detailing church history in those first three chapters to the present day. Chapter 4 begins with the rapture of the church. Chapters 5 to 22 focus on Jews as well as Gentiles remaining on the earth, which is the tribulation period. The 1,000-year reign of the Messiah on the earth, the final judgment, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and eternity future. So that's where it's a little bit of both. Kind of like Acts. You have two Jews, you have two Gentiles. It's really for both. But the church of God is absent for a predominant portion of that book because the church of God is absent. The church of God will be raptured and taken away from judgment to come. But all those who have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have not trusted in the shed blood of Christ dying on the cross as payment for their sins, that might be a day you find yourself here on if you've never come to that point. So warning. I kind of teased this earlier, but we're going to end here. Turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Speaking of, these are passages we looked at when we studied church history. Yes, these are seven churches that existed during John's time. Yes, these are passages that you and I can take and apply it to ourselves today. But there's also a bigger prophetic picture of these periods of time talking about church history. But on your study sheet here, Jesus specifically warns us, do not apply Jewish truths to ourselves if we are not Jews. Or not to apply if you wanted to keep with that. Jesus specifically warns us not to apply Jewish truths to ourselves if we are not Jews. Look at verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. Under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Again, this was a very heavily persecuted church, and their faith grew. God grows your faith when you're being tried. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of who? He says the exact same thing in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Because in church history, for those of you who are here in our Revelation study, we saw that there were a church and then subsequently churches who would take 
passages of Scripture written to the Jews, and they would take them and apply it to them as though it was written to them. And when you do that, you enter into all sorts of false teachings and doctrines that are still going on today in the church. Not this church, but other churches. And it can lead you astray if you don't realize that God is speaking to three different people groups. Again, it's this whole doctrine of, it's called replacement theology, that God is done with the Jew, and it's just the church, and God is just working with the church. It means that any promise of the Old Testament that has yet to come fulfilled must be brought in by the church. And that's where you get these passages, like in the book of Joel, where it talks about speaking in tongues and healing, or Mark 16, as we began in our review today from last week. Mark 16, that must mean I can take up serpents and get bit, and I won't die because, man, the Spirit of God is alive in me. You have this being taught in church today. That wasn't written to them. Sure, there's devotional truths you can apply from that. God will protect you. He always protects us, even if you're about ready to get burned at the stake, like we saw in church history. You're protected because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's practical application to that, but He's not speaking to you. God is not done with the nation of Israel. I can't wait till we get to this passage in Romans 11. Paul's saying here, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Meaning you just believe what you want to believe or what from some YouTube pastor tells you. That blindness in part is happened to Israel. Yes. Is Israel beacons of the gospel right now? No. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, which you trace that phrase throughout Scripture and doesn't show up very much, but it shows up just enough to know that that means when the rapture of the church happens, which is a predominantly Gentile church, God's going to go back to them. He uses a beautiful word picture in this chapter, if you want to check it out later, where it's, it's a vine. And they were a branch that was removed, and he had a wild branch, the Gentile church, plugged in. But then, because he's God, he's able to remove that branch and graft in the original branch back in. Speaking of Israel. Because during the tribulation period, God goes back to working with the Israelites again, with the Jews. And there's a lot of passages that have not yet come true yet that will, when he goes through that, when he goes back to working with the Israelites. But churches today have taken some of those passages and applied it today, and they got all sorts of crazy beliefs that aren't true. Warning number two. And this can come just from the whole idea of like, man, so really only Romans of Philemon? That's the only books of the Bible that are written to us? No. As we've already, I think, made the case abundantly clear, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's God-breathed. God breathed through the authors of this book, every single author of this book, He breathed through them and spoke to them what to say. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is what? Profitable. From Genesis to Revelation, even though predominantly most of it is a Jewish book, you can profit in your walk with Christ from it. We went through examples of that in the Old Testament even. A book like Obadiah. You can profit from that. 
You could profit for doctrine, which is teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Don't only focus on Romans the Philemon. All of the Bible is for you. You can glean things from it, all of it. Just know that not all of it is to you. This is where people get into trouble. Any questions? All right. Now your homework class. And I will try my best to send out a reminder this week. So you guys, you might want to write at the top of this. Make sure you also do uh, Acts 19 verses 1 to 4 for context. But these verses that are on your sheet here, specifically where you have to identify people groups, and just to let you know, if maybe it was a little confusing, like, well, what are some of these things that churches take out of context and teach as incorrect <coughs> doctrine in churches today? Uh, you study out these verses, you'll know. And if you maybe struggle, come back next Sunday. We'll go over these and we'll see what some of these false teachings are that are done in the name of Christ today. All right, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for an incredible book that you have here. And not only that, you gave us the tools that we need in order to be able to study it. A simple verse like 1 Corinthians 10.32, where it reveals to us that there's three people groups. That is huge to our understanding. Otherwise, we're going to just completely wrongly divide this book. And we're going to be ashamed. And that's not what we want to do with this class. Is it shows at the end of our, our study sheet, every single page. We want to study to show ourselves approved unto you as a workman. It's going to take work. And I pray for each and every single one of these kids in this room that they would work this week. It's not going to take long. And again... They just have fun with it. Call each other up. What did you get for this passage? Let them do that this week and have fun because, God, it's important for us to know your book, to know why we believe what we believe, to be able to show it and demonstrate it to others so that we can win this world for you. We love you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Pray just for your hand to be upon us this afternoon with whatever it is we end up doing. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.